the ages of four to eight, you're excused to kids club. <laughs> he sounded surprised. <laughs> what? It's going to make my day. This morning we are continuing in the book of First Peter, walking through a series we've entitled Living in Hope. To continue to bring context to this letter, which we've done every week, and purposefully so, Peter addresses this letter in verse 1 to a group of people that he refers to as the elect exiles, a people chosen by God living as aliens in a country that is not their home. And when we talk about that, we're not talking about geography, but we are talking about citizenship and the reality that in believers in Jesus Christ, our citizenship is primarily an eternal one and primarily related to Jesus. And it's huge for us to take into consideration, and it's huge for us to own, to recognize that primarily we belong to Jesus Christ, and that He is our home. And that's what Peter writes here to this, in this letter. He writes and tells them this. He says that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that we belong to Him, and our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And we're aliens in a world that will reject our king, that will reject our values, and will reject our worldview. So we should never, ever, ever, ever be surprised by that. And so Peter reminds them, tells them that those who've trusted into Christ and to salvation, that we are chosen by him, accepted by him, and ultimately sent out by him. That's why we keep coming back to chapter 1, verse 3, where Peter says, basically in a word of praise, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what Peter puts out here is because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, He is praiseworthy. And in Christ's resurrection, it shows us a living hope. And that's how he continues to unfurl the rest of this book. Is What is this living hope look like so as we've walked through it so far peter has showed us and declared to us in the first chapter what it looks like to be in jesus and he started to paint a picture of hope for us and as we turned into chapter two he gave us a calling do you remember what it was oh tension moment <laughs> he gave us a calling he called us not actually to a job, but he called us into the word that we would be a people who crave pure spiritual milk, that we would long for God's word, and he called us into community so that we would be a part of a body who in group unison declare his glory together, and he gave us a mission that we move when we have moved far away from sin and that we'd move far away from the passions of our flesh, that we'd lead a holy life that we would use our lives to reflect his character and our actions would reflect his priorities, even to those who would despise us. So Peter has called us into his word and community, and he's called us to be living examples of Jesus Christ. And this morning he takes another step deeper and another step further into showing us what does it actually look like to reveal Jesus. And as Peter gives us this perspective... He teaches us on submission. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear the word submission. But I can tell you 
what it brings to my, what it brings to mind to me. When I was a kid, I had an older brother who was four years older than me. His name was Grant. He was four years older, four years bigger, four years stronger. And when you have an older brother that's four years older than you, submission means what happens when you can no longer fight back, and he's got you in enough pain that you have to give up. Now, most normally, this ended up with me flat on my chest on the ground with an arm up my back and having to tap out and give, declaring him the winner. Now, sadly, in my house, when this happened inside, my dad would say, just drag him outside. We don't want to do that in the house. So then my brother would drag me outside and I'd get pressed into submission again in the backyard. This was my view of submission, some variation of something we saw in WWF, something Sting, Lex Luger, or Hulk Hogan performed, but that's not remotely close to biblical submission. In fact, the word submission in the Greek comes from the word, it's a combined word, hupotasso. It's to place yourself under. That the idea in the Bible of submission is nothing you could ever force anyone else to do, but it's a willingness to place yourself underneath something. Now, that becomes a huge concept in the Bible, and you'll see it as we walk forward, that we would place ourselves under something. Because this morning, as we walk into the second and third chapters of 1 Peter, we're going to look at this concept of submission. But more importantly, we're going to look at it as a reflection of Jesus Christ to the world. So if you haven't opened your Bibles, this morning we'll be in, second, we'll be in the second chapter of 1 Peter, page 1015 in the Red Pew Bible before you. Now in verse 13, in verse 18, and in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, Peter calls us to submit. In the ESV, the version we're using, it says to be subject to, but it's the same idea. It comes from the same Greek word. It is the same Greek word. Verse 13 says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 18 says, be subject to your masters. And verse 1 of chapter 3 says, wives, be submissive to your husbands. And in these three passages, Peter gives us three illustrations of submission. And while we want to look at those three instances, we actually want to spend more time looking at the greater concept of submission to recognize that what Peter is doing here is drawing three illustrations into life for a concept that he would call all of us too. And what Peter does here is to bring us to two huge things. Peter desires here to give us the example of submission. And then Peter is going to give us the purpose of submission And in doing so, he's going to bring the application of submission into three really challenging areas of our life, government, work, and marriage, and we'll talk about that as we continue. So we've used the word submission this morning. If you're wondering if this applies to you, let me put it this way before you. In the New Testament, there are seven clear lines of submission, seven places where submission is in the command form, and here's where they're listed. Children to parents. Anyone have parents? Yeah, that's all of us. Interestingly enough, there's actually no guideline for age in here. That there's still a degree in which we're still supposed to be submissive to our parents. Now we can get into and lean into what that looks like, and we should. It comes out of Ephesians 6. You find it in a couple places, wives submissive to husbands. You find it in three places, everyone should be submissive to their government. And friends, Remember when Peter writes this, 
probably Nero, who's burning Christians in Rome, is the man he's talking about. So don't get too belly ached over our government system. Nobody's burning us at the stake yet. And then he calls us to be submissive to our employers, employees to employers. He calls all of us as believers to be submissive to church elders, to the leadership of the church. In Ephesians 5.21, he calls us to be submissive to each other. That Christians would submit their lives to one another. Strong, emphatic statement. And first and foremost, and above all of these things in Ephesians 5.24, we're all called to submit ourselves to Christ. And in fact, we find that the previous six all align themselves in our willingness to submit to Jesus Christ. So let's look at the example that Peter gives us in verses 21 through 24 of chapter 2. This is what Peter writes. He says, For to you who have been called, or for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Now in the greater context of this, Peter is talking about slavery, but it's a true concept regardless of your cost or your context of submission. We will suffer because Christ suffered. That's what Peter is writing here. And of course, he's writing in the context of slavery, and we can talk about that. But what Peter makes clear here to us, Paul also puts forward to everyone in his second letter to Timothy. When he writes this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will suffer. What Paul writes to Timothy is, if you desire to live out Jesus Christ in your life, you will suffer. It's true for all of us, because Jesus Christ suffered. That's what Peter's writing here. So watch this. Jesus was, continuing in verse 21, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now that's not a hypothetical. That's not really even a suggestion. It's telling you that Christ suffered, leaving you an example. If I put an example before you and said you should follow this, you wouldn't look at it and go, that's great that he did that. I'm going to try something else. If we were to build a project and I were to walk you through the three steps to build a birdhouse like I did with my son a couple months ago at Home Depot, we followed the steps. We had an example. That's what it looked like. Peter says Jesus Christ gives us an example that we might follow in his steps. He suffered, we will suffer. The idea here is if you call yourself a Christian, that you're a Christ follower. And as a follower of Christ, you would be his disciples. And as a disciple of Christ, not only would you know his teachings, you would know his examples, And we would live that out. And that's why Peter calls us to this. That we live out his example. And he continues. He committed no sin. This is his illustration. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter's now going to walk us through the example of Jesus. Primarily using Isaiah 53 to point back towards. To tell us that Jesus lived a sinless life even in his trials, even in his sufferings, even his crucifixions. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds we have been healed." 
what Peter writes here is in his suffering and his death, Christ paid the price for our sins, took on the penalty for himself. Our sin was imputed to him. His righteousness was imputed to us. This is our salvation. But that's not what he's writing here. What he's writing here is this is also our example. And the example put before us in Jesus Christ, if you look at verse 23, it's there. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Friends, when we suffer, when we're persecuted, when there are challenges in our lives, will we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, or do we assert ourselves? Because that's the big question we're going to land on as we push through this message. Is my life primarily going to be about me asserting my rights, asserting my authority, asserting, asserting my needs, or is it going to be about entrusting myself to Jesus Christ? That's why we're honing in on submission as an idea, not just on the examples, because this is the call to all of us, that we would entrust ourselves to Christ. For there will be days that we will all feel like we are suffering by the hand of the government or suffering under a domineering boss or suffering in an impossible marriage. These are his examples. But to know that Christ was our example. Not just in his suffering, but he was an example in entrusting himself to the Father. And that's our calling here. Entrust ourselves to the Father. That's the place where we submit ourselves. When we place ourselves underneath the Father and allow His will to supersede my will, we entrust ourselves to Him. We submit ourselves to Him. Jesus was our example, but He's also our purpose. And if that last one didn't take If the last one didn't come close to home, this one will a little bit. Jesus is our purpose. And he gives us two contexts for this. First, he talks about it in the context of government. We'll start here. It's simpler. In in, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, Peter writes this. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. First and foremost, let's start with this. This is the will of God. I mean, you don't get a more thus saith the Lord statement in Scripture than this is the will of God. For many years, I served as a college pastor. The number one question that would show up at my door is, what is God's will for my life? Fill in the blank. And what people always contextually miss about the will of God is he spells it out in the Scriptures. And here he says, this is the will of God, that by doing good you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the will of God that we would lead a lifestyle that so points to Jesus that those who would disagree with us would be silenced. It's the will of God. You'd quickly find, if you studied through them all, you'd find the will of God always informs us to the why and to the what and rarely informs us to the where. We always want to know where God is calling us, but the reality is always calling us to the what and the why. What do you do when you get there? And here he says, lead a lifestyle that reflects him, that reflects his character, that reflects his love, that reflects his values. 
And by showing the world Jesus, we'd silence our objectors. And you'd note that this is a reflection back to verse 12, which we walked through last week. That we'd keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of salvation. What Peter writes here to us is a reflection Keeping in mind, this is about people who are saved. This is a call to Christians. Not that you'd work harder or white-knuckle your faith. Pick up the podcast from last week. But it's that you'd live out Jesus Christ. That we'd be His reflection. And Jesus takes it a step further. Peter takes it a step further in the context of marriage in chapter 3. And he makes it more plain to us when he gives us this illustration. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. A Peter, a married man, puts one of the hardest imaginable examples before us. He says, if you're married to an unbeliever, and by the way, this is absolutely true whether you're male or female, that you would honor them, that you would love them, that you would submit to them in such a way that puts Jesus Christ first. That you'd love them in such a way that Jesus Christ is exalted, that they see Jesus and not you. That it would be about Him. So he says that they'd be one without a word by the conduct that we would live before people and friends You see that Peter means it because he goes to the most challenging contexts when he puts before us this idea of marriage, this idea that we have a testimony to our unbelieving spouse. It's not just about me, it's about him. It's about me showing Jesus to my spouse over and over and over again. And this context of submission tells me that I have a testimony to an unbelieving boss. That I have a testimony to an unbelieving police officer. That I have a testimony to everyone around me and that they're called in the Scriptures to watch my life and that by watching my life, they'll know what I believe. And friends, our purpose here is Jesus Christ. It's not me. And we've approached the text this way this morning because it can be far too simple for us to categorize submission into some some simple categories and miss the greater calling. Now, there's no question here that what Peter is writing, he's writing in the context of governments. That you'd submit yourself not only to the emperor, but to the governors. Not only to the, the person in charge, but the guy that the person puts in charge in charge. So all of his emissaries that we would be subject to them. A number of years ago, I was with a high school student. We were driving to a soccer game. He was driving the car. I was sitting in the passenger seat. Uh, we were on the highway. It was probably, we were in Texas, so the speed limit was probably 70. My friend Scott gets pulled over. He's going 82 and a 70. Policeman comes to the window, says, son, do you know how fast you were going? Scott says, yeah, I was going like 85. Police officer says, no, you're going 82. He says, so? Police officer says, Son, you were speeding. I need to give you a ticket. My friend Scott says, you don't understand. I'm in a hurry. Now, to, to this point in my life, I still don't understand why Scott thought that 
why that would win the argument. Um, and I'm really surprised as that conversation went further, he didn't get arrested. But Scott did not understand submission in that moment. That he had an opportunity to reflect Jesus Christ to a police officer. And friends, I use that to an example because it's probably the most common place where we're going to have to submit ourselves in the context we live in. When you see a police officer, when you're breaking the law and the guy comes to your window, is it going to be about you or is it going to be about Jesus? See, because if you make it about you, you cuss the guy out for doing his job. If you make it about you, you're anxious and you make it all about why you're right or frustrated, or what's going on in your life, rather than appreciating you have no idea what's going on in that guy's life, or what's going on with that guy's kids, or that guy's wife, to reflect Jesus Christ in that moment is huge for all of us. And if we leaned into the text, Peter would continue to press on us. For if you go to work, And he writes this in the context of masters to slaves, and I understand that we don't live in a slave context, but the principle holds that if you have a boss who's unruly, who takes it out on you, who at 4.55 dumps piles of work on your plate, who calls you to come in on a Saturday when you don't want to, makes you work longer than you want, friends, rather than asserting yourself, Assert Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not telling you to roll over. But I am telling you to assert Jesus Christ. That it doesn't have to be primarily about me in that moment. About my frustrations. About my anger. It's my opportunity to declare Jesus Christ. And I absolutely understand how hard that is. And I think Peter understands how hard that is. It's what we're called in that moment to entrust ourselves to the Father. And when Peter takes it a step further and walks into marriage, it's that understanding for us to see that even if your spouse is a believer, they're primarily going to understand God's grace by your ability to love them. See, when they look in the Bible and they hear about the unconditional love of God, and they think about unconditional love, who do you think they're going to look at? Probably you and their mom. And so you have that right in that moment to love somebody unconditionally. That's why in 1 Corinthians 13 it says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Why? Because if somebody wants to know, could God truly forgive me for something? It's going to be, have to be expressed out of your life to them. Now, understand that's categorically speaking, there could be some huge things going on in your marriage. I'm not naive. But appreciate this. What Peter's calling us towards, a view of marriage where we primarily assert Jesus Christ and not me, and in each and every one of these situations, it requires me to die to myself. It requires me to be crucified. It requires me in that moment To wage war with my selfishness, which I love. Friends, I kid you not, there's no one on the planet I love more than me. And I guarantee you're the same way. We've got to wage war in our selfishness, and we do so by submitting our lives to Jesus Christ. By submitting our lives to the Father, 
by entrusting ourselves in these complex, difficult situations to allow Jesus Christ to come out, to allow Jesus Christ to be shown, to allow Jesus Christ to be exalted. Friends, we've taken this approach to the text because submission is a Christian calling. It's true for all of us. And if we just walk through those examples, there'd be a group of us who it wouldn't apply to, or so we'd think. We are all called to submit our lives to Christ. It's the principle in 2.12 that He's now expanding out, that He's applying, that He's bringing to bear in government, work, and marriage so that we'd see how it lives out. Friends, we're called to lead our lives primarily as a testimony to Jesus Christ, even to the point of being mocked even to the point of being abused, according to the text, that we would live out our love of Christ to others. And this is that point where you embrace Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Friends, none of us on our own merit can accomplish this. Not a single one of us can white-knuckle our way through this situation, can tough our way through it. You want to know why marriage is so challenging? Because Jesus is using it to grow you up in the faith. He's using it to grow you in holiness. It's why in marriage, and I picked the most complex of the three, it's why in marriage you get to the point, you go, I can't do this anymore, I can't do it on my own. Awesome, Jesus. That's what you get at that moment. That's when you say, Jesus, I, I, I'm lost. I got nothing. That Jesus is going, good, we've got something to work with now. No longer is it about you and asserting your will, your desire. It's about me and this is good. Friends, it's hard. Marriage is hard. Work is hard. Life is hard. We submit ourselves to Jesus. We entrust ourselves to the Father And that by doing so, we would lead a life that is a testimony to Christ. That we'd be willing to suffer. We'd be willing to be persecuted. And that people would watch it happen knowing that Christ is exalted. So as we live out our lives, as we desire to show Christ, take it back to the submission lines and recognize this. That in Jesus Christ, we're called to show Christ to our parents. That's an unconditional statement, by the way. It, it really requires that your parents, an unconditional love requires that they could have done awful things to you. Now, I'm not telling you to define, I'm not s- defining submission as rolling over here. I'm telling you, you've got to love and honor them. That's what the Bible says. Love and honor can look a lot of different ways. And if you've got a huge challenge in that talk, I'd love to ch- chat with you about it. But it calls us to love our spouse. And loving our spouses is an unconditional promise here that we would show them Jesus Christ and understand there are lots of different situations. But that we would show them Christ. We'd love our president, regardless of what the name is on his placard. That we'd pray for him, honor him. We'd love our governor. We love our mayor. We love the, all the county officials, the city officials put over us. 
God is in charge and he's placed them in their positions. So we honor them and show them Jesus Christ. That we'd honor our bosses and our co-workers. That we'd show them Jesus Christ. That we'd honor our church elders and show them Jesus Christ. That we'd honor each other and show each other Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're submitted to Jesus Christ. We've entrusted ourselves to the Father. Friends, I encourage you to reread this text sometime this week. To pray over it. And to ask God what work He needs to do in your heart. Because we get brought to this place to question over and over, am I asserting me or am I asserting Jesus? Am I looking out for my best interest or His? And the challenge is to always put out Jesus. It's what we need the most. It's what our spouse needs the most. It's what our boss needs the most. It's what our government needs the most. This morning I want to close in a little bit of a unique way. I want us to turn to Philippians 2. I think I have one through one through eight. Is that what I have? Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Now I put it on the screen behind me because this is what I want us to do. I want us to read this all together out loud. Because this is Paul writing, telling us that if we have any encouragement from Christ, comfort, if we know him at all, that we would take on his attitude. So just as together, I want us to read this. I'm going to read it on the screen so we're all together. Hopefully I made it big enough. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul paints the picture for us. That Jesus was God. And that as God, He emptied Himself. He entrusted Himself to the Father. If there was anyone who could have asserted Himself, it would have been Jesus. He gave us the example that we would have the same mind, the same attitude, and the same humility. Is this an impossible call? 
Absolutely. But we serve a God who is faithful, who's called us to a living hope. Because he's called us to a living hope, we have a a living God who's alive and active and moving, and his spirit is at work in your life if you've claimed him. He's at work in you. So in those moments when it all seems impossible, lean on Jesus and trust yourself to him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Father, that both encourages us, exhorts us, and rebukes us. Father, there are times when we come to texts like this, and to be honest, it stings. I want my life to be about me. I want my life to be comfortable. And yet, Father, you want something so greater for me than that. I pray, Lord, for me. You'd allow me to die to myself. I pray for us, God, that you'd allow us to die to ourselves. That we'd entrust ourselves to the Father. Not in just simple ways, but in everything. Father, that our trusting ourselves to you would go so deep that it would impact our marriages. Father, that our entrusting ourselves to you would go so deep that it would impact our workplaces. Father, we'd entrust ourselves to you and it would go so deep that it impact the relationships we have with our government and those put in charge of us. Thank you that Jesus Christ is enough. It says in your word that we have everything in Jesus Christ for life and godliness. When we entrust ourselves to you, we lean into Jesus. You are enough to walk us through all of this. Father, you've called us as a community in Christ to reach a community for Christ. God, help us to be a better reflection of you, your character, your heart, your example, and your purpose. It's in Christ's name, Christ who was God and emptied himself, became the ultimate example for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let the ushers come forward.